as Dan mentioned, um, normally we do two cameras at two different angles during our live stream. We're on one camera today. And since they say a camera adds 10 pounds, I'm celebrating my weight loss uh, being down to one camera. We in John chapter 5 today. Um, telling Jesus stories as we finish out 2021 and focus on stories we've heard, stories we know, but maybe we need to take a fresh look at to get to the heart of who Jesus was and how he works in our life and how we work in the lives of others to try and show him. I love this story in uh, John chapter 5. I really do love all the stories of Jesus healing. Uh, they're all somewhat unique and very revealing of a compassionate and loving uh, son of God and someone who was always teaching and always showing an example and consistently saying, I'm doing my father's work. And especially if we read the Gospel of John, very clearly uh, states this overtly, over and over, I'm doing my father's work. John's Gospel emphasizes so heavily that Jesus is the Son of God. What Jesus does is what God does, and what God does is what Jesus does. He, the, the line between them becomes far, far, far thinner in John's Gospel, because that's the purpose of his writing. Uh, John's Gospel was written very, very late compared to the other New Testament writings. Most of John's writings were fairly late in the first century, which means there was time to reflect, and there was time to have already heard the stories. There was time for these to be passed around by word of mouth and even written. Uh, we have at least the three Gospels written prior. Uh, there are likely a handful of other accounts that were written by other people that we either don't have or did not make it into our canon. Uh, it seems, as scholars have tried to piece together the Gospels and look at them, it seems that there was at least another piece of source material uh, that the, some of the gospel writers relied on because they have found sections and little snippets of manuscripts from something that isn't exactly anything that we have uh, and that seems to predate what we do have but that shares commonality with at least three of the gospels. And so there are other source materials out there. Somebody else was writing these things down. But all that to say by the time John gets around to his writing, uh, he doesn't need to tell the biographical story of Jesus. He needs to show who Jesus is. He needs to be demonstrative of Christ's divinity to those who would read it. So there's a lot of miracles. There's a lot of deep theology. And we have uh, a lot of demonstration of Jesus' attitude towards the ritual and law of the time. Jesus was not what we would call a scofflaw. He was not someone who did not care about the law of Moses and the Jewish custom. He simply knew the place that it held in his life. He had that perspective because he understood God's plan. And he was trying to show that perspective in his ministry. That this law was valuable, but it was only as valuable as the sacrifice that stood in the place for the people's sins. It was only as valuable as the high priest that would, that would carry the... Uh, the, the thoughts and the needs of the people to God. It was only as valuable as what stood in the place of these things. And again, I would direct you to the book of Hebrews for a little more about that particular subject. Now here Jesus comes in chapter 5, 
in Jerusalem, and it says that by the sheep gate there was a pool, that's verse 2, which is called in Hebrew Bethsaida, having five porticos. In these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered. Uh, the, the translations here are a little bit challenging. We can kind of equate some modern medical conditions here. Let's talk a little bit about how important it is, um, the, the physical defects that people have and had. We live in a very, very progressive society and have for some time when it comes to dealing with illness, disorder, and disability. Uh, we have codified in our law how companies, how organizations, how governments must accommodate those who have different challenges or different uh, physical uh, changes in their body, whether it be paralysis or blindness or, or anything. You know, um, so many uh, deal with the loss of different senses. Never experienced that until uh, post-COVID, I've lost my sense of smell. It's a strange feeling. Now, for the most part, it does not negatively impact my life. In fact, there are some cases where it can positively impact your life. If you drive by a dairy farm, hey, I am Superman right now uh, driving by dairy farms. But um, it is a strange way to think about the world, not experiencing things that I've normally experienced. And I think about those who are deaf and who are blind um, and how much more drastically that would impact my life. And I'm thankful we live in a time and in a place that cares for those people, that does its best. And I think as a society generally, we all support um, trying to take care of those who have those needs. Wasn't really the case in the first century. In fact, on the basis of law, the Levites were running all the religious uh, aspects of life. That was the tribe of the priests. And certain families within that tribe were responsible. I mean, you had to be the, the, the best of the best in the tribe of Levi in order to serve in the temple. And service in the temple not only required being a part of the right family in the right tribe, but participation on the temple property required that you have no physical imperfection. Those who had scars, those who were disfigured or deformed in any way, those who were crippled or who possessed any sort of physical ailment were not allowed in the temple property. And therefore they had to rely on the priests and of course the high priest to take care of their spiritual needs. So this was a big deal, that the, this area was filled with people who suffered from physical ailments. Their physical ailments were not only um, completely detrimental to their lifestyle, but also to their earning a living. So you have physical and financial challenges, but then it, there's spiritual challenges as well, because you're not allowed to go to church, to put it in, in our modern terms. You're not allowed to go to church because there's something wrong with you. Um, you're not allowed... Growing up, <coughs> uh, there was a gentleman um, that, was, that ran the church camp that I grew up going to, and he also was an administrator at, at my school. When he was young, he had a bicycle accident, and he lost his big toe on one foot. Um, and it was always fun when we were at camp, and we would go swimming, and, and he'd you know, take his socks and shoes off. And by the way, this guy was you know, 
every other time I interacted with him, he was straight-laced, suit and tie. You know, he was the superintendent of our school. Um, and then we got out to camp, and he was a different person. He was awesome. But when he would get those shoes off and get in the water, get in the canoe, get, you know, whatever, you could see, and inevitably, someone who didn't know his story would ask, what happened to your toe? And, uh, and he would tell the story, and we all got a good laugh about it. But um, he, for that reason alone, would not be allowed to participate in the spiritual life of his fellow tribes and kinsmen because he had something missing. So now he had, he had to overcome some things physically, walking and balance and that sort of thing. You don't realize how important a big toe is until you don't have one. So in addition to physical... There was also financial challenges, which we don't understand much about because we seek to mitigate them. But then there's the spiritual problems. From the simplest thing to the most obvious thing, you're not a part of this faith family in an active way. You must rely on others. Your life becomes totally reliant on others for everything. And so you can understand why these people are laying here and sitting here they're not a part of the mainstream of society. They are marginalized and even looked down upon because it was often thought that if there's something wrong with you, you must have done something wrong. You, have, you, you or your parents or someone has sinned against God and you're being punished as a result. It was a common attitude toward those who suffered from different physical ailments. Now this is interesting because... They're laying there, and uh, they're waiting for the moving of the waters, okay? So there's, there's this water, and they wait for the moving of it. And John says, for an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water. Whomever then first, after stirring up the water, stepped in was made well from whatever disease with which he was afflicted. Now, this is interesting because John describes a customary belief of the people at the time very matter-of-factly. As we read that, we go, well, that's silly. That must be some silly superstition they had. And different scholars have tried to take this out of Scripture by saying, well, there was a spring or there was, you know, a disturbance in the water and it was a, maybe there was, there was some healing qualities, maybe it was some kind of mineral water or something like that, and it, and it could provide, uh, you know, pain relief or something. And they try to make it like it's some spiritual parlor trick being done. John just states it matter-of-factly. John just says an angel comes down, stirs the water, and somebody gets healed. I don't know if that's literally true. I don't know if John is using the figurative language of the time. I don't know if there's anything spiritually involved in what happened. But there are areas in life that exist somewhere between the physical and the spiritual that we generally accept even today. Um... Hundreds of millions of people every year worldwide purchase self-help books or go see therapists or do any number of things to try and cure ailments that they have mentally and emotionally and even spiritually. And we don't think of that as being strange. We generally think it's accepted and acceptable to seek help for the things that trouble us. And there are a whole lot of other examples in our life today. So when we look at that and think, what silly people for believing something, remember, John doesn't say, but this wasn't true. He doesn't give us any other explanation. 
something about this place and this activity was doing something because people kept showing up. Does that mean that it was some, something we need to know more about? No. If God wanted you to know more about it, there would be more about it. We don't know if he worked this way. We don't know if he works that way today. But we do know that there are things out there that make our lives better that are not always expressly from a book, chapter, verse. And we accept it. And we move on. Because if we get hung up on what's going on in the water, we forget to look at what's happening outside of the water. And that's the conversation Jesus is going to have with an individual who's sitting there. So verse 5, a man who had been ill for 38 years was there. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been a long time in that condition, he said to him, do you wish to get well? Interesting question. He's there for a reason. Why would Jesus ask, do you wish to get well? I don't think this is just a question of curiosity or a conversation starter. It's very evident that those who are gathered there wish to get well. This strikes me as almost a question challenging the seriousness of this man's intention. Are you really going to do what it takes to be better, to cure your ailment, to find treatment for the problem that you suffer from? Because it does have a, 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 a flavor of questioning intention. Do you wish to get well? I don't know why Jesus picks this guy, but obviously Jesus and his divinity was able to discern that this man had been suffering from a condition that he needed a cure from, and he had been there for 38 years in that condition, and he was unable to be healed from whatever it was. The, man, uh, the sick man answered him in verse 7, Sir, I have no man to put me in the pool. When the water is stirred up, but while I am coming, another steps down before me. Um, I've heard preachers attack this guy as a whiner and an excuse maker. Maybe he was. Um, but I've also heard people say he was the victim of, of other people and their rush and selfishness in getting healed. I don't know which one's true. I know that for whatever reason, this guy is stuck. He is stuck. He is stuck in a condition he does not wish to be in with no way that he understands to get him out of it. I think it's hard sometimes for our minds to understand that condition because of where we live and when we live. We have all been raised in a culture that despite the political winds of change still remains a pull-yourself-up-by-your-bootstraps place. And I, I happen to like that. But it does block the part of our brain that is supposed to understand that that situation does not exist everywhere in the world. And it certainly didn't exist in first century Jerusalem. And then when there were people in destitute situations, they were just in destitute situations. And no one was clamoring or protesting for a government program to save them for, or for a charity to take care of them. It was a part of the law that people of faith would care for those who couldn't care for themselves, and there were specific ways you were allowed to do that. And everything else was off the table. This man is stuck. 
And Jesus utters to him what must have felt like an almost insulting thing to say. Get up. Pick up your pallet and walk. Now, I would really love John to give more detail here. Because what he says next is, immediately the man became well and picked up his pallet and began to walk. Now, maybe, I'm, maybe this guy's just smarter than me. Maybe he has more faith than me. But if I'm sitting there and Jesus says, do you want to get well? And I give him my sob story and he says, well, just get up. Uh, if, if I'm unable to, I'm going to have some questions. I might protest. I might argue. And that would to us, as we know the story, seem foolish. We know Jesus. We know who he is. We know what he's capable of. We know what's going to happen to this guy. It wouldn't make any sense to us for him to argue. And yet, if you were there, and that was you, would you not at least want to know a little bit more about what he's asking of you, about what he's saying? And are we not that kind of people when God is urging us and calling us and moving with us? Do we not sometimes say, now wait a minute, that's not how I want it to go. Wait a minute, what do you mean that I'm supposed to, to, to take this path or do this thing? We question God all the time. We doubt and we want to know more. And sometimes we just need to move. I don't know if there was conversation that went on between those two verses. I imagine there had to be something. But he, he did immediately become well. And he did pick up his pallet and begin to walk. But that's only half the story. Jesus goes to someone who's been chronically ill, unable to be healed, unable to move. He's unable to move well. His mobility is certainly in question because he can't get down to where the healing takes place. So Jesus heals him. Great story, right? We can all go home. That's only part of the story. He has reached out to someone. We don't know why he chose this person. We have to kind of parse the words of, do you wish to get well? And we have to then know the other part of the story, which is this, the scenario and the circumstances around this. I think Jesus calls to each of us asking, do you wish to be made well? And in a spiritual sense, I think there is a crying out of the heart that longs for salvation. Scripture talks about that. The history of the world and our nature and the law and Christ demonstrate that. There is something in our hearts and in our souls that cries out for a Savior. And Jesus, in his ministry and in the words of the gospel, is asking us, do you want to get better? Do you wish to be well? And whether we've been too stubborn, or whether we've had some bad luck, or whether we are totally ignorant, all of the different reasons, Jesus stands there and says, I have the answer. If you haven't heard of me, here's who I am. If you've been holding back, here's why you shouldn't. If there's something that's troubling you, let me defeat that for you. Jesus has an answer, and his answer is to make whole what is incomplete. That's what his healing was. You know, Jesus didn't go around and make ugly people look pretty. That would have been nice, right? No, he went around and took what was broken and he fixed it. It wasn't just superficial physical changes. There's something he's saying in his healing 
He's expressing love. He's expressing a, a, a care for people. But also demonstrating that Jesus is the one that completes the broken thing. The word in scripture that we see is perfection or perfect. And we think of perfect as flawless or blameless or without any sort of Im Im impurity. But perfection in the language of the Bible simply means it's complete. That it's finished. That it is lacking in nothing. So those who have physical ailments or disabilities or disfigurement or whatever uh, affliction they suffer from, they're imperfect because they're incomplete. They don't function like an average person is intended to function. Jesus completes them. Jesus perfects them in a physical way. And in the same way, Jesus himself, we talked about this last week as we looked in Hebrews at how the temptation that Christ experienced made him perfect in that it made him complete because he was able to be God and man in that moment. But Jesus is consistently showing, I take what's broken and I put it back together. I fix it, I complete it, I perfect it. But this doesn't come without a cost to Christ and his ministry because he's broken a very important rule. Remember earlier I said, he wasn't someone who just scoffed at the law. He, he wasn't trying to be necessarily provocative. And he wasn't trying to lead a rebellion. But he was sharing a message. And he didn't do things accidentally. Because he was raised in a faithful Jewish household, in a faithful Jewish community. It wasn't like he forgot what day it was. But as you can see in the next verse, the end of verse 9, it was the Sabbath day. So the Jews were saying to the man who was cured, it's the Sabbath, it's not permissible for you to carry your pallet. The Sabbath was an interesting, you know, in our culture, Sunday is our, worship, our day of worship. That's the day we get together and we worship and we fellowship. And there are some people that take that to a different extreme than others, as far as it being the idea of a Sabbath, which is the idea of rest and reflection and dedication. Uh, some people say, I'm not going to do anything on Sunday. I'm not, I, in fact, I had this conversation not long ago with, with Tom Smith, um, uh, several weeks before he passed away, because it was just that weird time of year where it's cold enough that's making the grass grow, but, uh, but you know, do you want to get out and mow that one more time? We're not sure when winter's going to start. And he was talking about needing to mow his grass. And he always had to do it on a day when Maggie was home. And we were talking about that, and he said, well, you know, I should have maybe done it, uh, should have maybe done it today. He said, but I don't believe in working on Sunday. He had that old school mentality. That we treat this day as the Lord's day, and we give it to the Lord, and we rest. I, that's not a scriptural provision. That's a matter of conscience and focus, and I respect that. But according to Jewish law, there were some very specific rules about what constituted work on a Sabbath day. In fact, those who really cared about keeping the law, they would take with them sticks or markers, and they would walk to the distance that was the limit given by law from their house, and they would lay it down. And they could not cross it on the Sabbath day. That, that's how they knew, there's my limit. They would mark it out. So they knew how far they could go and still follow the law. Because for them, 
Rest on the Sabbath and dedication and faithfulness on the Sabbath was a matter of meters and feet and not a matter of attitude and heart. That's what it became. Because they lost touch with the intention of the Sabbath day. And so here, the leaders call him out on it. You're carrying your pallet around. And he's just been, for 38 years, he suffered an affliction. He sat here by the pool, and Jesus came and healed him. He's all better. It's the greatest day of his life. He picks up his pallet, and they say, ah, ah, ah. You better think twice before you celebrate on this day, because you're breaking the rules. I think, I think we still have people like this in our churches. In our community. It's good to love the Lord, but don't get too excited about him. Because we have rules around here. And so, they say that it's the Sabbath, you can't carry your pallet. Verse 11, he answered them, He who made me well was the one who said to me, pick up your pallet and walk. In other words, Jesus said I could do this. And if this guy has the authority to heal me, there must not be anything wrong with carrying my pallet. They asked him, who is the man who said to, said to you pick up your pallet and walk? But the man who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had slipped away while the crowd was in that place. Afterwards, Jesus found him and said to him, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. I love this scene. The man kind of moves on. This, this great healer has, has drifted away. And then as he's standing there, and by the way, Afterwards, Jesus found him where? In the temple. Where he had probably never been in his entire life. That's where he is. He wouldn't have been allowed in there, and he wouldn't have had a means to get in there. But there he is. And Jesus comes up to him. Can you imagine? when? And by the way, the temple was built. It's not just a church building. Okay, We have church buildings. Different thing altogether. This is a meeting place. This is where we meet. This is more like the tabernacle, a tent of meeting. The temple was designed to be a house where God would actually live. God physically dwelled there. Do you know how important it was to be able to be on that property, to be on those grounds, to enter that gate? Man had never been there before in his life. And now he's standing there, experiencing for the first time his closeness with God. And Jesus whispers in his ear, hey, you're all better now. But there's more yet to do. Guard your heart. Your body has been made well. Now make your soul well. And live the life that you've been called to live of faithfulness. And a slight warning, because there are worse things than the physical ailments that we experience. And the man leaves there in verse 15, goes away and tells the Jews that it was Jesus who made him well. For this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But he answered them saying, my father is working until now, and I myself am working. It's an important word. Work was not allowed on the Sabbath. He calls it work. Hey, God's always at work, even on the Sabbath. And if God's at work on the Sabbath, I'm at work on the Sabbath because, as John points out throughout his gospel, there is no distinction between God and Jesus. 
are one and the same. If God's going to work every day, Jesus is going to work every day, even on the Sabbath. Because the people of the time had lost touch with the purpose of the law they were given. We all do that. We still do that. It's amazing to me that in a country that has existed now for 250-something years or whatever it is, that we have uh, court cases that go to our highest court, the Supreme Court, and these nine people sit around and try to decide what people meant when they wrote the laws that we have. Isn't that interesting? That in just a couple hundred years, between two and three hundred years, we don't have enough information to know exactly what they intended in this amendment when they wrote it. We have some ideas and we have different opinions, but we can't go back and ask Thomas Jefferson. Can you imagine what it would have been like to be a Jew a thousand, two thousand years after that law was written? Do you know how much institutional knowledge may have been lost about the purpose of that law? And do you know how much about the practice of that law would have become just the rote part of daily life that you don't question anymore? You don't work on the Sabbath. But why? It's a day to dedicate yourself to the Lord, right? Yes. What about the work of the Lord? God's working on the Sabbath day. And so Jesus is going to work on the Sabbath day. It was meant to draw your heart closer to God, not give you an excuse to do nothing. And certainly not meant to restrict you from doing good. Jesus knows the purpose of the law. He knows the heart of God. He is God. And so when it is time to move, he moves because love trumps law. And it does every time. And when we read these Jesus stories, we see several key themes we see him going to the marginalized and the outcast to deliver to them good news and spiritual cleansing. We see him going to the voiceless and the faceless and the nameless. We see him going to the oppressed. And we see him working in a way that clearly demonstrates that love for one another and the love of God being expressed in action is greater than the law which governs their people, their ritual, and even their faith. Love trumps law. He tells a woman who's been taken advantage of by doctors and physicians, and that would have been a very questionable term in that day, that she's healed, calls her out, calls her his. Tells no better way to put it, a sex worker, that her sins are forgiven in front of the religious elite. Goes across the desert to a Samaritan woman at a well, and she's the first one to hear him say, I am the son of God. It's the first person he ever told that we have recorded. Is this woman we know nothing about except that she was hurting and outcast. Jesus goes to those who need him and he speaks the words that they need to hear and he does not let misunderstandings of God's law restrict him from doing good. It's not that he doesn't care what the law says. It's not that he doesn't know it. It's not that he won't follow it himself. It's that he understands the purpose. He knows where to put that in its place. 
and how to follow God's design for him, God's will, and to demonstrate God's love. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we could all do the same? That's my encouragement for you this morning. Be a blessing to those around you and be blessed yourself. And if myself or anybody else can help, we want to do that. Let's stand and sing this next song together.